So this morning's uh, scripture is actually Psalm 127. Uh, it's, you remember, 126 was last week. Um, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed be the word of the Lord. So this week we had a couple of mix-ups. Uh, of the which psalm we were actually speaking on. Psalm 126, Dave Winch spoke on, but uh, maybe God wanted me to re-preach that sermon. I don't know. But uh, we're actually going to go through Psalm 127, which is what David just read. Thank you. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, I, I think many of you know me, but for those of you who don't, my name is Pierre Willems. I am married to the lovely Dina Willems. I won't embarrass her, but she uh, does the children's ministries here. So she was doing the kids' moments and doing those little mini kids sermons, so that's who, that's who I'm married to. And uh, we have four children, uh, two girls and two boys in that order. We, we plan that. And, um, and they are, that's a joke. And uh, the oldest is 16, my younger, uh, next daughter is 15, and my uh, oldest son is 13, turning 14 this month. And uh, my youngest son is 11. Uh, so we are... We are enjoying life. Uh, my oldest just got her license yesterday. You're welcome to congratulate her if you know Marie. I know, right? Good job. Uh, so she got her license. She drove her siblings to get ice cream yesterday all by herself. And as she, my favorite line of yesterday was as she drove out the driveway, my wife looked at her and in all seriousness said, should I hop in the van and follow her? And I said, and I said, maybe. No, uh, I said, no, we didn't do that. That would have been awkward for all of us. So um, I, I have two jobs, um, well, other than like being a father and all those other things. I have two jobs that actually pay me money. Uh, one, uh, one job, I, I work part-time as the campus director for the Navigators uh, at UMass Amherst. And so I work with college students, do campus ministry. Well, I, I did before COVID. Hopefully it happens again. And, and then... Um, the other job that I work is I'm a contractor, a uh, self-employed contractor. I work a lot with Rick Light, who many of you know here. Uh, we do you know, kitchens and baths and decks and stuff. Um, I just say that to let you know a little bit of my background. I'm not looking for work. We're all good. But um, I, uh, it does kind of play into the sermon a little bit, the fact that I, that I do construction and I also do ministry. So um, as we think about this psalm, uh, the very first line from the psalm uh, made me think of a show that I used to watch. The, the psalm says... Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, right? And so um, I thought of this little this show. It's a, it's a BBC show, um, and it was, uh, I don't even know if it's around, but 
my, when my kids were little, we used to watch this little animated show called Bob the Builder. And I don't know if anyone's seen it. I'm, I'm curious, anyone's seen, raise, go to raise your hand. I'm, oh, hey, look at this. Okay, Bob the Builder, right? All right, there's a song, and there's a theme song to this, all right? And so if you don't know it, I wouldn't say you have to go watch it, but you know, it's, it's a cute little kid's show, and the guy's basically a handyman, remodel guy, and, and he's this little animated character, and he's got you know, tools that talk to him and sing and stuff. You know, it's kind of one of those shows. Uh, he's got you know, Dizzy the Cement Mixer and stuff like that, right? And they, they, every episode, there's, there's like a problem. You know, like Granny down the road has got a gate that won't shut, right? So, so they gotta figure out how to rebuild the gate and, and fix it, right? And, and he has a phrase he says all throughout the show, and it's in the theme song. You guys can look it up, it's there. Um, and in the theme song, it's Bob the Builder, and he says, can we fix it? And then like, the crowd of kids and his tools yell out, yes, we can. And I'm going to repeat that. He says, can we fix it? Yes, we can. You didn't have to say it, but that's good. So that wasn't really what I was going for, but thank you. I don't know if that was Chad Huntley there, but like, you know, can we fix it? Yes, we can, right? And there's nothing wrong with that phrase. It's, you know, nothing wrong with having confidence and, and things like that. It's a great thing. But as I thought about this, this psalm, and I thought about that phrase in that show, and I thought, you know, it is kind of a little bit of a microcosm of how Americans, and I think even American Christians, kind of view the world around us. As we build our life, right, as we, as we walk through life and we, we have our families and our houses and our homes and our cities and our communities, as we build this life around us, we bump into problems every single day. And what we say is when we face the problem is we say, oh, can we fix it? Meaning, can I fix it? And we say, yeah, we can. Yeah, I can. I don't, I don't need God. I don't need, I don't need religion. I don't need Christianity. I don't need that stuff. That's a crutch, right? I can fix it. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. And I think that it's kind of interesting because I think that as, as American Christians, it's just all around us, this self-sufficiency, this rampant kind of hyper-individualism. It's just all around us in the culture. And it's difficult to weed out. And this psalm is actually kind of a slap in the face to that mentality. It's, sometimes God just takes a two-by-four over the back of my head. That's usually the most effective way to get my attention. And this psalm is that kind of a psalm. So in this psalm, Psalm 127, it is an interesting psalm because it's set right in the middle. If you've been to the previous sermons, you know, it's set right in the middle of a series of psalms that are called Songs of Ascent. Right? And, and ascent is like ascending, going uphill, right? And the city of Jerusalem was the holy city. It was the capital but it was of Israel, ancient Israel, but it was also the capital of their religion. It's where Solomon built the temple. And by the way, Solomon wrote this psalm. This is the only psalm in all of the psalms that is actually directly attributed to Solomon, who's much more well-known for Proverbs, right? So Solomon, the great wise king after David, wrote this psalm. There's actually a lot of conjecture that he wrote this psalm for the coronation of the temple because Solomon built the temple, the house of God, which is kind of interesting to think about. But traditionally, the ancient Israelites, as they would, as they would ascend up the roads to Jerusalem because it was built on a rocky hill, they basically they would go up this hill and they would be on a pilgrimage for, for a special day, like a feast day. It was a time of worship. And as they would ascend the hills, they would sing or they would pray these psalms. And so it's interesting, what, what was important about these psalms? What was it that, that made the Israelites read these psalms on those days? 
So as these guys from these little towns of ancient Israelite, you know, little villages would, would walk through the gates, the, the beautiful gates of Jerusalem, and they would see the palace of the king, and they would see the temple in front of them. It would be like, you know, the farmer from Iowa walking into New York City, only a lot, a lot better. And so they would walk into the gates of Jerusalem, and they would see this, and they would be awed. And what would it, they say? What was this a reminder? It was a reminder that this wasn't just man's work. It was a reminder that all that they saw in front of them, the physical as well as their actual lives, everything that was being built was not just built by them. It was also built by God. And so as you read the psalm, there's almost two parts to it. And I think we misunderstand the psalm a lot because of that. In the first part, we have kind of the part that I've been talking about. And in the second part, we have this this kind of uh, several verses about children and family. And if you do a quick Google on this psalm, it was amazing to me. Probably 80% of the sermons out there were things like how to have a godly family, how to raise your family, how to have, you know, this kind of thing, which is actually not what this is about at all. Okay, so this is not a sermon about having a family. I want to be really clear about that. Because that's not what the psalm is about. Children in this psalm are just an illustration, and we'll explain that in a minute. But this, this psalm has one cohesive theme. It's only five verses, and it has one theme. And I'm going to read it again, and I want to see if you can pick it out. You don't need to yell it out to me. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. I just want you to listen again, okay? So I'm going to read this psalm again. I want you to listen. What is the theme of this psalm? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. It's a great phrase. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So I'm not going to make it a big mystery. We're not going to do a great big study and then I'll have this big reveal. The theme of this psalm is actually pretty, pretty direct. The theme of this psalm is that building our lives is going to require us to work. But ultimately, the results are not on us alone. They are in God's hands. And that might be a long phrase, but there's a reason, because it is a little bit complex here, and we have to be careful. This psalm does not say, don't do anything, and God will take care of it for you. It doesn't say, God builds the house, and you can sit at home and watch Netflix. That is not what it says. And actually, Solomon is known for chastising lazy people and basically saying, look at the ant, you sluggard. Great, great little term there. Uh, use that as you raise your children. No, um, but like he's, he, you know, he, he has, Solomon is known for, for really rebuking people who sit around and don't do anything. So, so he's not saying sit around and just say, God's going to take care of everything. Although I do find it funny that we apply that sometimes to dating. I love it when people tell me, well, I'm just going to let God bring the one into my life. Well, that's nice. Let me know how that works. So it is not saying that we should just sit back and do nothing. That is not what it's saying, right? So what is it saying? It's saying that our lives are going to require us to work. But ultimately, the results, the wording is important here, the results are not up to us alone. 
They are in God's hands. It is a psalm that is about dependence on God. And all of the psalm points to that dependence on God, including the part about children and family. That is actually what that is about. So let's jump into the psalm and kind of work through it. And there's several things I think it's helpful to define. Right off the bat, it talks about building a house. It uses these two illustrations, building a house, guarding a city, right? These, just to be really clear, these are not literal, okay? Although obviously it can apply to literally building a house, but that's not, that's not actually the idea. He's not talking about how to, have a, you know, how to be a good contractor and build a house or how to be a, a good police officer or, or in the military and guard a city. That's not what he's talking about. This is a metaphor. It's an allegory. It has to do with our lives, and actually all aspects of our lives are touched on. Family, very personal, very private, very intimate, the family life, children, spouses, all of that, but also our homes and our public life and the city around us and our community. Basically, when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, it's about building our lives. It's about what we do day in and day out. Our work is mentioned because that's what we do day in and day out right? That's how we build our lives. We go to work every day. Well, most of us. So that is, the, that is the key thought here, right? And so the house is a metaphor for our life, but then it also says, unless the Lord builds it, they labor in vain. And what does that word vain mean? It's not something we use a whole lot of today. If we say someone is vain, we usually mean they're kind of stuck on themselves or they think they look better than they do or whatever. But vain in this case, um, the Hebrew word here just means empty, it means useless or worthless. It's kind of a harsh word, actually. So, so what does it mean that unless the Lord builds our lives, we labor uselessly? What does that mean? Well, I think we have to be really careful because I've heard all sorts of sermons that go all sorts of directions with this. And, and I think we have to let the text actually tell us what it means because the next verse actually tells us what it means to labor in vain. And he gives this, he gives kind of this, Um, this picture here in verse 2. He says, here's what it is to be vain. It is vain that you rise early and go late to rest. In other words, you get up super early and you go to bed super late. All right? So all of you should feel guilty immediately. No, it's not about going to bed late. It's not about getting up early. It's, It's the mentality behind it. It's the motive behind it. Why are you getting up early? Why are you going to bed late? And, and then he explains, he, he has this phrase, and I love this phrase. You're going you're gonna to hear this phrase a lot. Eating the bread of anxious toil. That is the problem with getting up early and going to bed late, is you're doing it because of anxious toil. Now, that's a fun one. So, so what does this mean, to eat the bread of anxious toil? Right? Let's, let's think about this for a minute. And I, I think in every aspect, that every job I've ever worked, I can think of illustrations of what it means to, to anxiously toil, right? And I'm going to be really clear, for those of you who, who get really picky about semantics, I'm going to use the word anxious, anxiety, worry, stress. I'm going to kind of just use them interchangeably. I know that technically that's not true, not accurate, but just give me some grace. So what are the roots of, or what is, what is this anxious toil? And, and one of the illustrations I thought of was in the construction world. If you've worked in construction, you can relate to this. I, I had a friend um, many years ago who was a contractor, and he and his wife were solid Christians, a big part of our church, and, um, and I did a lot of work with him. And he was really talented, really, really, uh, really master craftsman in some ways, and, and really great guy. And, um, but one of the struggles I had with him was that whenever I worked with him, I always felt like there was this like, great weight and it, I always knew that at the end of the day, it would be like, hey, you want to put in a few more extra hours? Hey, we're kind of running behind. Hey, 
can we stay late? You know, and it was, and it was just one, kind of one of those things. If it was a Friday, I knew he would ask me, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? You want to work on Saturday, make some extra money? He probably went to 50% of the services, the church services that, I mean, he was a part of our church, member of our church. He probably went to half of them. And when I would see him in the week, I'd say, hey, we missed you. Where were you? Oh, well, I just had to get this job done, you know, and you just got to work. You got to do what you got to do, you know, got to make ends meet. And then, and then he would, um, and then if he did go to church, his, his MO was to show up in his work truck, uh, leave church, go grab lunch and go work. So even when he did go to, go to church, Sunday was not a day off. And, and if you know contractors, some of you who are in the trades, this is not that uncommon, to, to run a business, mo- a lot of contractors, their perspective is, well, you work seven days a week. That's just how it is. And that's just life. And, and I have to say that that's not true. I worked for other contractors, and, and when I was self-employed, I had to make decisions. And there were some hard conversations that my wife would have with me when I would start working Saturdays regularly. <laughs> and I would say, well, I've got a lot going on and really busy, and hey, it's extra money. And she'd say, yeah, what about, what about the kids? What about family? What about, what about rest? What about time off, right? And so, so what's interesting is that it's really easy to fall into this mode of anxious toil. It doesn't mean that there aren't times you're really busy. It doesn't mean there aren't times you're going to get up early and go to bed late because you've got a lot of work to do. That's okay. That's not the point. The point is the mentality and the mode behind it. It's this anxious, worried, it's stressful toil. And we do this in a lot of ways. It's not just construction. Um, I think of a story in the Bible where, where there's a little anxiety and, and in um, Peter's life. And, and I love Peter. Uh, my name is Pierre, and Peter is the English version of Pierre. And I relate to him a lot. He was really good at sticking his foot in his mouth. So, um, so Peter, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's at the Last Supper with Jesus, and, and they didn't wash each other's feet, right? You guys know this story, right? They're at the Last Supper, and, and they had this dinner, and nobody washed the crap off each other's feet. You know, I remember they walked in sandals through, you know, donkey-ridden streets, right? So it literally was crap. So, so that nobody wanted to do this because that's like the lowest servant's job, right? Like that's the crappy job. And so, so no one wants to do this. And so Jesus gets a bowl and water and all this, and he, and he starts washing the disciples' feet. And Peter, you can see, like, there's this anxiety in Peter. It's kind of interesting. Peter's, Peter looks at him and is like, you know, and he, and he kind of confronts them. He's like, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. We should be doing it for you. And there's like this anxiety. It's like, oh no, I failed, right? Jesus is doing this and I should have done it. And man, I'm a loser. I, gosh, I should have been the better servant. What's wrong with me, right? I should have been like impressing Jesus and I'm not. And so then Jesus says, wait a minute, if you don't have, let me wash your feet, like you're not even gonna be a part of this conversation. And then the anxious toil even gets worse and Peter's like, oh, then give me a bath. You know, like, I got to impress Jesus. And, and it's just so interesting, like, even in ministry, even as we serve in the church and we serve one another, we can do it out of a heart for God. We can also do it out of this, like, anxiety and this stress and this worry. And, oh, man, if I don't, if I don't pick up the chairs at the end of the service, like, are people going to think I'm not a good servant? You know, if I don't go talk to someone, if I don't go do this, if I don't do that, man, you know, what are people going to think of me? And, and so the work is not the problem. The chairs need to be picked up. You know, the disciples' feet need to be washed. Doing the work is not the problem. It was the perspective. It was this anxiety that was wrapped around their work and their life. So what, I want to park here for a second. So what are the roots of anxious toil? Why did Peter respond that way? Why do I respond that way? Why do you respond that way? 
Now, I don't, I don't know the answer, right? I mean, every, every single person here is a little different, and everyone's going to lean different ways, and we all got our own issues, right? So, so what are the roots of anxious toil? I just threw down a whole bunch of stuff and, that I could think of, and I just want to kind of run down them. And, and I'm sorry if some of these overlap a little bit, but that's just how my mind works. So, And I get to speak, so hey. Um, so the roots of anxious toil, uh, one of the first things that I thought of, at least for me, is people-pleasing. Why do I get anxious? Why am I stressed about my work? Because I want everyone to, to be happy with me. See, I want everyone to, to think I'm doing a good job. I want to make everybody happy. So I've got to do a great job to impress everyone. Um, fun, funny little, kind of ironic story. Yesterday, I'm preparing for this sermon, this sermon about eating the bread of anxious toil, right? I know what it's about. I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, but I work, and so Saturday was my day. Yesterday was my day. A little bit of pressure, like I got Saturday, I got to get this together, I got to do this sermon. And lo and behold, directly underneath me, um, I'm on the, I was on the second floor in our house, I had the door shut in our little like office area, and below me are my boys, and they're doing something. I, I don't even know what, it doesn't matter. Well, they're getting into how should I say it, a lively discussion, 11-year-old and a 13-year-old, and the volume is rising, and, and I'm hearing it upstairs, and it probably went on for like 30 seconds. It was not long, but I'm up there like, I've got to get this sermon together. They're interrupting my sermon prep, so I rush downstairs. You know, if, it was, if I was a cartoon, it would have been the whole like, you know, steam blowing out my ears, red face. I run downstairs. I, you know, give them the what for, you know, get a little good yelling in, because that's what you're supposed to do, right? You know, yelled at him, was very harsh with them. Um, this is not, I'm being sarcastic, it's not what you're supposed to do. So, so I, I blow up at him, and then, I, and then I, you know, took care of that, went upstairs, and sit down to write a sermon about anxious toil. And I just, I just if you haven't caught the irony, I'll spell it out for you. So here I am, thinking about, and then I'm pausing, and I'm thinking, why did I just blow up at my children? Like, that was not right, right? Like, I need to apologize to them, and I, and I did later, but, like, I need, I need to go back and make that right. But why, why am I blowing up at my kids? Why am I so angry at them? What exactly did they do that was so terrible? And what they did is they interrupted me prepping for my sermon where I want to please all of you. See, I want this sermon to be over and everyone to come up to me and tell me that was the best sermon you've ever heard in your life, right? I want everyone to affirm me and tell me it was a great sermon. And, and Bill Hodgman preaches on a regular basis, and I think he's a good preacher, so I'm compared to him, and, right? So, man, I want to make everybody, I want to impress people, right? So, so in this sermon, i got to do a good job, so my kids need to shut up and let me do my work, right? And, and it's all about me. It's all about me, me, me. I want my sermon to be perfect. And so here I am prepping a sermon on anxious toil, anxiously toiling over the sermon, right? And the irony is, yeah, it's great. But that's life, right? Like, we're not perfect, and we're all a mess. People-pleasing. Here's another one, and this one kind of goes right along with it. Achievement. Achievement issues. My success, my worth, my value is based on achievement. I must achieve, achieve, achieve. And so I anxiously toil. How about perfectionism? This is very similar as well, but perfectionism. It's got to be perfect. You know, through COVID, I saw some different responses. If you were working a job where this was the normal standard, and then COVID hit and the standard kind of had to be lowered, there were certain people who said, okay, that's life. And we're just going to do our best and move on. And then there were other people who said, oh no, that was the standard. I will kill myself to make sure that standard is met. Gosh darn it. And they did. And they're the ones that burned out and are really struggling with life right now, frankly. 
because there was no acceptance of the world around them. So that's called perfectionism. I've got to maintain that standard because I've got to look good, or whatever the reason might be. That's anxious toil. How about control issues? I'm not letting go of this. This is mine. Micromanagement, we love that one, right? Give a job to our kids, then no, no, you're not doing it right. Let me, let me tell you how to do it right. Uh, control issues, uh, how about identity issues? My whole identity is wrapped up in what I do. My whole identity is wrapped up in how people perceive me. That leads to anxious toil. See, if, if your identity, and, and the world, I think the culture around us has really put a huge, a huge stumbling block in our way with this one. You see, what we've been taught is this hyper-individualism. I mean, watch any Disney movie. The only person who can determine their identity is you. You see, you don't want to listen to those terrible parents or, or like communities or cultures or, or older people or anyone who might have wisdom around you. You look deep down inside yourself and you find your identity. And that sounds sweet until you realize that what we're telling people, especially young people these days, is you are utterly and totally alone. And I want you to think about that. You are utterly and completely on your own. Figure it out. That's what we're teaching our kids. That's what we're teaching young people. And we wonder why suicide rates are going up. You are totally on your own. Figure out your identity. Don't let anyone else tell you what you might be or how you might be made by God. Don't let anyone else speak into your life. It doesn't work well. So identity issues, it leads to anxious toil. And then this one is interesting, um, escapism. I thought about this when I thought about staying up late. And I thought, you know, sometimes I stay up really late because of anxious toil, because I have a lot to do. But a lot of times I stay up late because of escapism. See, I'm, I'm reading a good book, you know, a fiction book, of course, right? a good fantasy or something. I'm reading a good book, I'm, I'm watching a good show, I'm, I'm into a good movie, or maybe I'm playing video games. What am I doing? Well, I just, I don't want to deal with the reality. I don't want to deal with the world around me. So I escape. And I don't rest. I just escape. And when my escapism is done and I come face to face with the real world, I'm not rested. I'm not ready to go. I've just escaped. And then I have to deal with life all over again. And that leads to anxious toil. So there's a lot of root causes here of anxious toil, and I'm going to challenge you guys. This is probably the most challenging part of the sermon. Just want to challenge you guys to really think about this in your own life. When you're facing or eating the bread of anxious toil, take the time to dig down deep and say, what is behind this? Why am I acting this way? Why did I care so much about that? Why did I get so angry about this? What's behind this? And I want you to notice the contrast, because I think this is just a beautiful picture. In verse 2, it says, we're eating the bread of anxious toil. And then he says, he says, don't do that, right? And then he has this just like one line. And it's really interesting. It says, for he, for God, gives to his beloved. That's to those he loves, right? For God gives to those he loves sleep. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. Because you would kind of think he would say success, right? I, I kind of wanted to see that there. That, that actually would have been better for me, right? If I'm going to follow the Lord and depend on God, I want to see success. And this is another mistake that this, this psalm is often thrown into, especially in ministry. Well, unless the Lord builds the house, so we've got to make sure we're on God's side, we've got to pray and seek God, and if he's on our side, he's going to build something grand, 
That is not what this says. You know what he says? If you depend on me and you rest in me, I'm going to give you a good night's sleep. He doesn't say you're going to be successful. He says you're going to be able to close your eyes, pillow your head at night, and know that you are in the Father's arms, whether you're successful or not. It's a lot like the story in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you know the story, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but basically this king asked them to do something wrong. These people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, great names, should be new baby names, we should do that. Uh, good old Shad, he's, you know, he looks at the king and, and, and they're about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Literally, the furnace is like killing people. It's so hot and they're not even in it, right? And basically, these three guys look at the king and they say, I love this line, they say, you know, our God is able to deliver us. Like, like they are confident. They're like, God can deliver us. And then the, the next line is the most important. They say, but you know what? Even if he doesn't, we're going to follow him. That's what this psalm is talking about. This psalm doesn't say, if you're in line with God, unless the Lord builds the house, then you're going to have all this success and everyone's going to be like, oh man, look at this person. They were so spiritual and they followed God and look at what God built. That is not what it says. What it says is, you're going to be able to go to sleep at night and know that you did what you were supposed to do and know that God is doing what he is doing. And you're going to be able to rest and be confident in the fact that you worship and work alongside a great God. That's what it says. And that flies in the face of our American culture because it's all about success today. But that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what the Psalm says. So one of the things that's helpful is to remember as we approach work, as we approach the life that we are building is to ask ourselves the question, who are we working for? And the Bible tells us that we are working as to the Lord. We are working for God. If you want to fight anxious toil, remember who your boss is. This is my first just practical tip for the day here. Remember who your boss is. See, because your boss... It's kind, of like, it's kind of like my wife's grandfather. Um, when my wife was younger, uh, her grandfather, now, uh, he, he was, uh, I don't know what he was like when he was younger, but when he was, at least when I met him as her grandfather, he's just a really sweet guy who loves his kids and loves his grandkids. And, um, and he, her, one of her first jobs when she was like 13 or 14 is that her grandfather would pay her to come rake the leaves out of his yard. Knowing her grandfather... I know that he doesn't give one flying leap about leaves in his yard. He can care less that there are leaves in his yard. He would just let them rot, and he can care less. He doesn't care what the neighbors think. That's not his personality. So why did her grandfather pay her, and pay her well, (laughs) to come over and rake the leaves in her yard? You know why he did it? Because he loved her. Because he had a relationship with her. And if he could pay her to come over and rake his leaves, if he could say, hey, Dina, why don't you come on over and rake my leaves, he got to bring her lemonade and make her a sandwich and sit down and have lunch with his granddaughter. See, it was about the relationship. Working for someone like that, I'm, I'm good with that. I like that. That's what it's like when we go every day, whatever it is we do, and we work for God. We work for someone who loves us more than we will ever know, and who wants to just enjoy our presence, and who is, wants us to enjoy his presence. He's not concerned about us impressing him. How could we? Are you really intending to start your day out by telling God you're going to impress him? 
is that really where we're going to go with that? Tell me how you're going to do that. I'd be curious. The one who spoke the worlds into existence and sent his son to die for you. If I work really hard today, I'm going to impress God. You don't need to impress God. He already loves you, and when he looks at you, he sees the image of, of himself in you. He's got his own stamp on you. You're his precious daughter, and you're his precious son. And he is thrilled to spend time with you. And so what does he ask in this psalm? You know what he asks? He asks for relationship. He says, I want you to recognize that I am working alongside of you. I want you to know that you are not alone. I want you to know that when you go to work every day, it's not all on your back. I want you to know that as you build a family and as you build your community, as you build your house, that I am working and that you can pillow your head at night knowing that I am there. And if your house is struck by lightning and everybody in my house burns and dies, guess what? I wake up in the arms of the Father. Great. What is the point of the anxious toil? So that's the first half. No, um, that's the first half of the psalm. Uh, we're going to talk about the second half. I'm glad Joan thinks that's funny. So we're going to talk about the second half of the psalm very quickly because the second half about children is just an illustration, okay? That's what it is. So if you think about the second half of the psalm, it instantly transitions and it says this. And the first phrase, let me find my note. The first phrase is the most important phrase. And it's right in the center of the psalm, which is very typical for psalms. It's right in the center is where the meat is. And it says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Guess what? There's one theme. Everything you do depends on the Lord, even having children. All right, so the really young ones are away. So if you don't want your kids to know that babies don't come from storks, you can cover their ears now. So let's just think about this, because I love this illustration. And, and I think it's just so great. The Bible is so direct about things that we hem and haw about all the time and get like Victorian about. So, so what God says is he says, right, you have work to do, but it doesn't depend on you. It only, the results only come from me. And you know what's an example of this? Kids. You have a job to do to make kids. It's called sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. May not feel like work, but you know, he says you have a job to do and you can do that job. But you know what's interesting? you cannot determine the result. And I want you to think about that. Because if, if you know anything about having children and couples and even in this community here, you know that it is not an equation. There are many couples in this community right here, in this church community right here, who tried for years to have children, who wanted to have children. And it was heartbreaking for them when they couldn't. See, because it's not just an equation. You can do your part, but the results are in the hands of the Lord. And that's the point of the psalm and the talking about the children. Children come from God. And we know some couples who couldn't have children, and they went out and they adopted children because they felt like that's what God wanted them to do, and that's beautiful. And we know other couples who, who made the decision and said, you know, we can't have children, and, and so we're going to be like the aunts and uncles and eventually the grandparents of all the church kids. And we, had, we were actually recipients of, of a couple like that who blessed us amazingly because of that when our kids were really little. I know of an, a young couple right now who is seeing a fertility doctor and they're trying to work through the issues, but they don't know. They may not be able to have children. And they're not sure what they're going to do. You see, having kids is not that simple. It's not just an equation. And that's why it's, he uses it as an illustration. 
And remember that in the ancient Near East, this is something that's hard for us to kind of fathom, but he talks about children being a reward. He talks about them being arrows in the hands of a warrior. And he says, you're blessed if your quiver is full. He never says how big that quiver should be. And he also says uh, that they won't be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate, right? What does is, what is all this talk about children and, and what is he getting at? Well, to be really clear, he's getting at the idea that children in the ancient Near East were, were a form of safety and security. His point is, is that when you had kids back in that day, when you had a large family, it provided safety. You were less likely to be attacked. You were less likely to have your, have your you know, whatever, home burned down and people steal your cows or your goats because you had many kids. There were many of you who could fight them off, literally. You also had, um, in the gate, was a re- is it more of a reference to like the town commons and, and it was the idea, in the gate always references where like the town officers go and they do business, right? And his point is if an enemy attacks you in the gate, you have a large family, you'll have some safety, you'll have some security. So I want you to get the point. The point is not about how to raise a godly family. The point is that safety and security depend on the Lord. Children represent safety and security to the ancient Israelite. Today, safety and security in our culture may not come through a large family. We live in a different culture. And I I just feel like I really need to say this for all of you who are single out there or maybe couldn't have children. The Bible, especially like in a psalm like this, the Bible does not lay out a blueprint that says you must get married and have kids. That is not in scripture. It actually is really interesting that the author of this psalm and several times in the scriptures, God feels the need to tell us that children are a blessing. I want you to think about that one for a minute. It doesn't say, so what we've done is anxious toil with kids, right? We've said, well, God says children are a blessing. Man, I better go have lots of kids so I can be blessed by God. That is actually totally false and heretical. That is, that is absolutely not what God told us to do. God said, I know children are really hard. So I'm going to remind you that they're a blessing. That's what God says. When we had a bunch of little kids, because we did very quickly, as I've said before, God's plants aren't always our plants. So we had, we had four beautiful children, right? And they were very close together. And that was a lot of work. And it used to tick me off because you'd have these old grandmas that would come up, and I hope I don't offend anyone too much here, but we'd have all these lovely ladies who would come from the church and be like, oh, look at this baby. They're so cute and cuddly. Let me hold them for five minutes and then give them back to you. Isn't it wonderful to have kids? To, oh, just, I just, I'm so excited you're having children. So lovely, your family. And I used to say, can I call you at two o'clock in the morning? And then at 2.30, and then at 3, and then at 3.30, because that's when my kids get up. And I, and I still go to work. Can I, can I, can, none of those ladies ever volunteered to come to my house in the middle of the night. See, those babies are super cute. But there are times where you want to strangle them, literally. And these kids are not easy to deal with. And God found it necessary to tell us over and over again, hey, just remember, kids are actually a blessing. Kids are actually a blessing. See, we've got this like really warped perspective on what the Bible says about children. God made it a point to tell us over and over again, hey, they're a blessing. But if we're actually going to make an argument about whether or not we should be married and have kids, you really ought to look through the New Testament because the truth is that the Apostle Paul, as far as we know, wasn't married and didn't have kids. And he actually made it a point to directly say at one point that he didn't think people should get married and that it was better to be single. So the ones who really should be questioning whether they're following God are all of us who got married. 
if we're really going to get biblical about it. And don't forget that if we're going to pat ourselves on the back and say marriage and family is God's plan, well, I worship and serve a single man. Jesus never got married. Let's be careful with our teachings. Let's be careful how we put down people who are single or don't have children. Let's be careful what we say that's extra biblical. Psalm 127 tells us that children are a blessing, that children provide safety and security, especially in that day. And Psalm 127 tells us that safety and security depend upon God, not me. I can work like crazy. I can put tons of money in the bank. I can buy all sorts of security systems. I can, have, I can live in the most secure, gated community. I can buy police officers. I can have the best military in the world and lose everything. I cannot provide my own safety and security. That only comes from God. So how do we develop a mindset? And I'm going to wrap this up very two very simple thoughts. How do we develop this? How do we work on a mindset that says, I'm going to depend on God? It's not all up to me. I don't want to anxiously toil anymore. I want to work and rest. I want to know that when I go to bed at night, God has it. I think there are two things, and Dave Winch touched on this last week a little bit. Two things. Number one, we need to know that he is there. And number two, we need to know that he is working. He is there and he is working. Number one, he is there. We have to be aware of God's presence. If we're going to depend on God, we have to start by being aware of him on a regular, maybe daily basis. A really simple way to do that is to pray. Prayer is simply an acknowledgement that God is with us and that God is there. It's a conversation and it's talking to God. And God wants that relationship. And that's what God asks for. That's why he says pray without stopping all day long. He doesn't mean on your knees at a, at a, at a, in a pew. What he means is as you're going through your day, talk to me. I want to hear from you. That's what he says. Prayer. I think nature is a good way. Get out. Look at the beauty of a master craftsman. Look at what God has done with the scenery around us. Western Mass is beautiful. Get out and look around. Look at what the master craftsman has created by almost nothing. I mean, it was nothing for God. And we get to work for him. And also people. Look for ways that people reflect God's glory and goodness. It's easy to tear people down. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to condemn. Look for ways that we see God working. Number one, his presence. He is there. Number two, he is working. Recognize God's providence. Providence isn't a term we use a lot of. Providence has to do with God kind of working behind the scenes, okay, in ways that we just, it's hard to describe sometimes. And I think we shy away from it because it is hard to describe. God's providence requires humility. When something goes well, when, when I study hard and I ace a test, I can step back and I can say, man, I did a great job, right? Like, I worked hard, I did a great job. Or I can say, hey, you know, I studied hard and I did my part, but God, God was a part of that. God gifted me and God walked me through that. See, it requires humility to see God's providence. And it's sometimes difficult to explain to someone else. Providence is hard to explain to someone. So here's my last little practical tip for the day. When we do see God's providence in our lives, find a way to express it. If you're an introvert, 
Maybe that's praying about it. Maybe that's writing it down in a journal. I saw God do this today. If you're like me and you're an extrovert, you can probably figure this out, uh, verbalize it to someone. Talk to a friend. Hey, I think I saw God do something today. It was kind of cool. Express it. He is there and he is working. So I want to kind of bring us full circle back to that opening theme song of Bob the Builder. I know it's a little bit cheesy, but I was asked to title the sermon, and so I told, I told um, Melanie that the title of the sermon was God the Builder. Um, so I know it's corny, but uh, so maybe as we go through our upcoming week and the problems of our lives come our way, we can ask the, the question in our minds, you know, instead of can we fix it, maybe we ask, can he fix it? And the answer would be, yes, he can. Let's pray.